just outside, right? just a tad it's bit, cold we'd be, still. we would be perfect. <laughs> and you were saying Semper Virens mm-hmm. worked there before the care program? Yeah. Yep. For about six years. Oh, uh, wow. Semper Virens, the crisis unit, mobile response, uh, kind of any anything crisis realm, that, that was me. So this has been your realm yeah. for quite a while now. Yeah. And how long have you been with the care program for your um, I hired on August 1st. Um, and so, you know, the first couple months there were program development. And then we actually kind of soft launched in January with the hiring of our first case managers. January. Okay. So two months under your belt now. Yeah. Yep. How do you feel like it's going? So far, so good. I mean, more more work than we can keep up with with the current staff. And so, you know, the goal is to keep sorting out funding and getting more staff and just kind of ramping things up and. Yeah. Seeing how everything goes. Exactly. Yep. Yep. How do you, I guess we should lay out, what was the need for the care program in Eureka? What sparked the desire to start that? Yeah. I think, you know, the, the, there's a real need in getting folks from point A to point B as far as services go. Services in Humboldt, there are a lot of agencies doing really passionate work and doing it really well. And it's just sometimes difficult even for like care providers to figure out which agency is going to be the most appropriate to go to or how to, you know, navigate getting uh, a client from, you know, say they're at open door and they need to go to social security to, you know, reestablish or get their ID or or not their ID at social security, get their uh, social security card. Um, And then from there they need to go, you know, back to open door, but then they also need to go to a pain referral or they need to, you know, then get mental health treatment and they need to, you know, go over to behavioral health. And then that's two appointments to get in for a doctor there. And, you know, it's, it's difficult to navigate a lot of that, even for folks who are who are doing really well. Um, you know, much less if all of a sudden you have some sort of impairment, like you know, you're hearing auditory hallucinations, or you know, you have profound depression and your motivation is tanked, and you don't want to get out of bed in the morning. Um, and so, you know, for folks who enter crisis, you know, that they come out of that crisis. You know, we have some services that help with that. We have the crisis unit. You know, folks can. You know, if if it's to the point where they need to be on a hold, they can be on a hold and go to the hospital and they can get services. But when they come out of that, sometimes there isn't always the follow-up available. Sometimes it's not easy. Um, maybe they don't fit, you know, the box that, you know, each agency needs them to fit into for their funding sources or whatever. Um, and so just seeing that, you know, needing more crisis services in the community um, combined with like needing case managers that can help folks get from point A to point B really uh i think was was uh, uh there there's a series of gaps that that folks were falling through as a result of that and so um you know through the city and and uh, a lot of work from commander lafrance and uh jeff davis uh, who's the program manager for uplift eureka um they they really worked hard to kind of pave a landing pad for uh, a mental health program and and here we are yeah i mean it seems like there's a lot of hoops to jump through even if everything was going well for you oh, absolutely. and then to stack on if you're homeless or if you're experiencing drug abuse or mental health to try to go through all that and deal with one agency and then get bounced to the next agency and then it would just be a lot to traverse it is it is and you know it, there's the unfortunate thing too where a lot of substance use treatment substance use and mental health are often differentiated and you know in the broad scheme of things i mean they're all health issues right and you know, we, we've come a long ways in, in society and knowing that, you know, substance use isn't a moral choice. It's a disease and there's a biological correlate and, you know, you actually have effects in the brain that change as a result of the substance use that cause you to crave the substance more. Um, and yet, you know, there, there's a lot of services though, where, 
you know, if you have too many mental health issues, you can't get substance use treatment. But if you have too many substance use issues, you can't get mental health treatment. And so like, how do you navigate that? Right. And so, you know, working, working each agency at the same time, trying to, you know, get some sort of detox and then trying to get, you know, mental health medications or getting some sort of mental health services or counseling or whatever. And then, you know, get into maybe a rehab at the same time. I mean, that takes a, a tremendous amount of coordination. And, you know, for someone who, Maybe they're homeless. Maybe they, you know, have a, a you know series of impairments. They don't have a phone. That I mean, that's that's you know a near impossible task for them to accomplish on their own. Um, and then you know, couple that with uh, some of the insurance barriers. You know, if if you don't meet the right medical necessity, you don't necessarily get a case manager um, assigned to you. And you know, so maybe the places that you're going to, they have case management, but you don't qualify for it. And so then, you know, folks like that end up falling through the cracks and they end up having to wait until it's become a crisis for them to, you know, get looped back into services, which is rough. Is that a significant problem that there's not enough intervention before it reaches this boiling point? Absolutely. Um, I think, you know, the, the, the goals that we're really trying for are to, to go further upstream um, for preventative care combined with then also still trying to provide more crisis intervention in the community. And so, I mean, it's really it's trying to kind of handle things where we're at right now, but then also develop, you know, the resources and the, the, the foundation to be able to go further upstream and stop some of this stuff from happening in the first place. And, and that's a real challenge for the field. I mean, that's a challenge that, you know, we're facing nationally with mental health issues and substance use issues. Um, you know, we're, we, we have an intervention-based healthcare system where we wait for things to occur before we intervene. Um, and it's, it's you know, been a real challenge even for, like, the medical side of things, like the physical health side of things, to really push preventative care. Um, and, and you know, it's it's even more of a struggle on mental health care. You know, it, we're at least at a point where most of us, you know, who have access to a primary care physician go and get a checkup once a year. Um, you know, most folks are not checking in with a psychiatrist or uh, a therapist, you know, once a year to kind of see, you know, how things are going when they're having a hard time. And in, I mean, preventative care across the board, like you said, is just the foundation for it is not there Absolutely. where everyone just waits to show symptoms and then, okay, we're going to treat the symptoms, but we're not getting at the root cause of what is actually, what is causing these symptoms? What's going on here? Right. And especially with mental health, like you said, nobody's going to a psychiatrist unless you are struggling and it's apparent that you need to go seek some outside counsel and get some help. And right. Right. That's not showing. What do you, what do you do? You just go about your life. Yeah. Well, and you know, you couple that with, uh, you know, for individuals who are experiencing things like bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, um, one of the symptoms, one of the core symptoms is something called onosognosia. And what onosognosia is, is the, uh, symptomatic lack of insight. So it's not just that you don't understand that there are, that you may be sick or that you don't understand that like things are getting bad or this behavior is odd. It's that as a result of the illness, you've literally lost the capacity to kind of step back from yourself and look at a situation and go, Oh, what I did was just kind of weird. Right. I mean, like if you or I were to, you know, rip our clothes off and go walking down the street naked and, you know, shouting about being God, it, in our right minds right now, we would think of that and go, that that's not in line with society's expectations, right? Um, for someone who who has bipolar disorder, who has schizophrenia, that sort of thing may happen, but as a result of the illness, they they literally lack the capacity to, 
look at that situation objectively from like an outside space and recognize that this is this is unusual. This is there's something about this that is not going well, or is that, that that's kind of uh, you know a problematic for integrating into society, right? And so, you know, that's the extreme version. That can even come down to you know, whether or not they acknowledge that they're sick or that they need to take medications, right? I mean, if you have onosognosia and you don't believe that you're ill, why would you comply with any sort of treatment? And so, you know, it, there's not enough education around that in, in I think, just the, the general public that, you know, part of these illnesses is a lack of insight is that, you know, the some of these these folks who we see out on the streets who are struggling with this stuff are you know, struggling with something that impairs their ability to recognize that they're in trouble, that impairs their ability to recognize that they're sick. And so a lot of that frustration, you know, well, why, why doesn't this person just get, you know, treatment or go to rehab or, you know, going, you know, take their mental health meds? Well, they, they may not understand. They may not have the capacity to understand. How do you implement preventative care for those folks then? If they're not aware of it, is, are you just relying on maybe family members that could see the red flags or does it just have to hit that point where it's apparent to society? I, I think um, family members definitely are a piece of it. If family is still involved, really engaging that family support is super, super important, making sure that they're, um, you know, integrated into that person's treatment. So like if that person's having therapy, making sure the family's involved in that therapy so that the family can understand what's going on just as well as the person. Um you know, when, when folks like that are already sick to the point where they're experiencing that symptom, um, oftentimes they, you know, unfortunately becomes this place where we have to wait for that crisis to happen. Um, and then, you know, they receive some sort of involuntary hospitalization or they receive some sort of involuntary treatment. And, you know, the hope is that once that involuntary treatment happens, when the symptoms get better, because that is a symptom, then that reduces and they're able to get some of that insight. Um, that's kind of the time to really strike and, and make sure that they have good therapy make sure that they have good treatment and, and that, you know, they're plugged into services so that they, you know, can understand and, and practice while they're doing well that, you know, this is something that I need um, and that helps. And then, yeah, plugging in their social supports or, you know, friends, family, a good therapist that's going to see them regularly. And then, you know, really practicing, like gaining that insight or how to reality test or, you know, picking out very early symptoms that are not onosognosia um, when maybe an episode is coming on and, and then, you know, treating that at that moment when that, those early symptoms are coming instead of, you know, it getting the to road. the point, right, where they, they lose that insight and things get bad again. What percentage of people with bipolar, with schizophrenia have, what is it? Ag onosognosia? onosognosia? Yeah. A-N-O-S-O. G-N-O-S-I-A. Um, you know, I don't know the the percentage offhand. Is it pretty significant? Um, it's it's pretty significant in in a fair amount of folks, especially in 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 I mean, my I can't even really say anecdotal because my anecdotal experience is skewed because I work with a lot of the folks who who were in the hospital, right? And so I mean these are the folks who the crisis has happened, things got to the point where it was bad. And so we saw a lot of folks with onosognosia working in the hospital. Um I mean, it's, it's, it's a not insignificant amount. Um, there, there is a lot of research out there. I don't remember the percentage offhand. And I would imagine for those people that do have that, there's really only one path and it leads to a service like yours because yeah. I mean, can they function regularly through society enough where they wouldn't end up in a mental health facility? Like it I wouldn't mean, be bad enough to get to the extreme or is that just a guarantee if you have that? 
It depends. It depends on the the other symptoms that come with that, and you know the the support networks that that person has. Um, you know, for for some folks, they're able to cope with stuff. They're able to, you know, maybe they they hear voices occasionally, but they're you know through whatever system they have set up to cope with that, they're able to work with it. Um, you know, there are a lot of folks who who are able to wrangle the energy that comes with mania and make it somewhat productive. Um, it's, you know, suspected that a lot of like famous artists had some, some degree of bipolar disorder, whether it's bipolar one or a lighter version, bipolar two. Um, and you know, hence why they have like depressed periods in their paintings and then they have, you know, more up periods in their paintings. Right. And, and it's expected that there may be a component. Um, I think Van Gogh comes to mind with that. Um, and so, you know, the, there, there are ways to, to survive with that. And that's an important piece I think to factor in is that, you know, with, with the right support and with the right tools and coping skills and education, you know, this, the, these illnesses don't have to be crippling. Um, you know, folks can be a, you know, with, again, with those, all those supports, they, they can get better and they can, you know, live a, a relatively normal life with, you know, the hoops to jump through to make sure that you self care just as anyone who, as any other long-term illness. I mean, you know, for folks who have diabetes, they have, you know, if they want to treat themselves well and, you know, not be impaired by that diabetes, they, they have, you know, dietary hoops that they have to jump through. Um, heart disease is the same thing. Um, you know, arthritis, mobility issues, right? I mean, there's, there's all, there's all sorts of long-term stuff that folks have, you know, impairment, but that impairment can be minimized with the right care and with the right self-care and, and services in place. Um, I think it's just, it's, again, maybe because mental health is more stigmatized and, and uh, in the sense of like preventative care, it lags behind physical health a little bit more. It's maybe a little more difficult to get those things in place. Well, again, the key being support and care. Right. You have to take these steps to help yourself and it helps to have a support network around Absolutely. you. And how many yeah. of these people, when they're going down that path or are deep into it, have that network and have the ability to care for themselves in a functional way, in a productive way. Yeah. And, and I mean, that's tough, right? And it, it's even more difficult too about the time that uh, substances become involved because then, you know, some of the behaviors become pretty uh, abrasive to family members, to friends. And you know, some of the behaviors end up kind of pushing their social supports and familial supports away. And then as a result, when, you know, things are at that crisis level, there, there aren't those supports to engage, which is really awful. And it becomes this kind of downward spiral where the symptoms push folks away, but then folks pushing, you know, being pushed away actually makes the symptoms worse. Um, and, you know, it's, it, it's difficult and some folks don't have it. I mean, some folks just don't. And, you know, it, it that often results in, you know, more inpatient admissions because they don't have those supports. So when they spiral, they spiral hard and it becomes, uh, you know, a point where it's a crisis and they end up, you know, detained on a psychiatric hold. And um, it's it's a, a rough situation. Are drugs fairly intertwined in the mental health story? I, I think drugs are often intertwined in the mental health story. I mean, it... <laughs> If, if we go back to, you know, the beginning of humankind, right? I mean, we've been trying to alter our brains and get high since, you know, we, we figured out we could, right? I mean, there's there's evidence, you know, thousands of years ago that we we're, you know, chewing on cacao leaves or, you know, there's another plant in um, the Asian continent that, you know, is you, people are able to kind of get an, uh, uh, an, an altered mental status, so to speak. Um, and, you know, I think as as 
we've evolved and progressed in society. We've just gotten, you know, more and more creative and more and more effective at, at getting higher or just in our brain. And so, you know, I think it's, it's pretty common when folks are uncomfortable, they're going to seek some way to adjust that. They're going to seek some way to, you know, cope or alter their mind. And, you know, whether that's the person who, you know, is newly homeless and is scared to fall asleep at night. And so someone offers them some methamphetamines and they use meth to stay up so that they can sleep during the day so that they don't get robbed at night. Or whether that's, you know, the person who has profound anxiety and, you know, uses cannabis to, to reduce that anxiety. But, you know, in the long term, cannabis can uh, exacerbate anxiety by decreasing natural coping skills. So, you know, it's it's similar to I guess in the sense that, you know, medications, right? If we look at drugs versus medications, I mean, all of them are substances we're using to adjust chemically. Some things are better than others, obviously. Um, but, you know, if if folks don't have access to the right medications, it's, it's not uncommon for them to seek some other mind-altering substance to cope. You mentioned meth to stay up, mm-hmm. stay awake so you don't get robbed at night. Mm-hmm. Is a lot of the drug use... I guess, would you say need-based in a sense like that? Or is it more so escapism to try to get away with that or or treat your symptoms yeah. with whatever you can get your hands on? I, I would say all of the above. I think some some combination of that. And, you know, I mean, need-based, I think sometimes that escapism is needed, right? I mean... Yeah, it depends you know, what you define need-based as. If, if, you know, you're in significant pain and, you know, you want to zone out and watch TV, then, I mean, that's need-based at that point, right? And so, you know, if if the methamphetamines are, you know, for a lot of folks right now with the fentanyl epidemic that's, you know, kind of doubling on top of the opiate epidemic, I mean, it's, it's a lot, I think for for a lot of those putting ourselves in their shoes, they see that very much as need-based, that they, for whatever reason, cannot cope without that substance. Um, you know, I don't think anyone... And, and I mean, this is, I think, you know, a leftover remnants of when we very much saw substance use as a moral dilemma, right? It was good or bad. And if you did drugs, you were bad. Um, and it's it's not, right? I mean, we know, again, we know there are the biological correlates. We know that there's uh, uh, an addiction uh, component in genetics and all that. And so I think when you look at individuals who are uncomfortable, no one wants to use a substance that's going to make them worse, right? I mean, objectively speaking, if, you know, you can offer someone a solution, you know, two solutions, um, one that has minimal side effects or, or no effects at all. And, you know, one that, that is really awful. And, you know, you tell them it's going to, uh, be neurotoxic. It's going to, you know, cause cell death in your brain. It's going to cause, you know, teeth decay and, you know, all these other health issues. Um, everyone's going to choose the one that doesn't have the issues. Right. But if that one isn't available, and folks are still uncomfortable, then they're in a position where they have to choose, well, do I cope with my current discomfort or do I use the substance that I know will hurt me? And, you know, that may not be so much of a conscious choice for a lot of folks, but it's a choice that is made nonetheless. Um, you know, there's even like my studies that is, you know, this is supported in where if, uh, you know, they had like two, oh, how did it go? They had a uh, 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 one cage of mice where, or may have been rats, rats, mice, whatever. The the rats were in a cage. Uh, the cage was too small. They kind of overpopulated the cage, right? So the, the, the size of the cage did not meet the capacity that was realistically needed. Um, and then they also, in the smaller cage, doubled the uh, gender ratio. So there are two males for every one female 
in, in that cage. And then they did two bottles of water, two sources of water, um, one that had opiates laced in it and one that was just regular water. And when you had the small cage with the skew gender ratio, the mice disproportionately chose the opiate laced water. When you doubled the size of that cage, right, made it appropriate to the population and equaled out the gender ratio, they disproportionately chose the regular water. And that's, you know, their, their basic needs were met. So there was a lot less push to go and drink something that, you know, has some other altering effect. It's telling. It kind of yeah. makes you wor worry about urban cities, like yeah. huge, dense populations of people stuck in this small area and where that leads. It's like, well, yeah. if you look at the mice, <laughs> what does that say in, in society in general right i mean there are so many folks who just don't have their basic needs met i mean whether it's you know because they're tightly bundled in a city or whether it's because they just don't have enough money to get by or you know in california we look at like the housing crisis with you know how how unaffordable housing is and you know how many folks we have that don't have housing in the first place and there isn't enough shelter um i mean when when people's basic needs aren't met they're 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 going to seek other things to fill that need do you give any weight to the idea, I mean, one of the big arguments with the homeless is there are people in the camp that think you should treat the homelessness first and then the addiction second, and there are others who think that needs to be reversed. You can't just house them and then worry about the drugs. You have to stop the drug use so that they can function, and then you house them. What is your stance on that? Um... I think that it's kind of a false choice. So, I mean, it, the, the, <laughs> it has to be all at once, right? It, so there's the housing first model and the housing first model says that, you know, you, the true housing first model, not what some folks will say. Um, the true housing first model is, you know, you get folks housing because if you do a bunch of work with sobriety or, you know, you get them into rehab and then they get out of rehab and they don't have housing, they go back to the streets, they're going to relapse. If you get them mental health treatment, they get mental health treatment, they stabilize, they go out to the streets, they're going to, you know, decompensate. Um, so you have to have housing in there, right? That has to be a piece of it. Um, it has to be the first piece of it. Because again, if you do these other things, you're, you're spinning wheels. Um, but housing first is not housing first in the sense that it's housing first and then you don't do anything, right? I mean, you have to have mental health and substance use treatment. You also have to have, uh, you know, some sort of, of therapy or job coaching or something to give meaning to life, right? I mean, if, if folks are, aren't engaged in something, they're not stimulated, they're not working, they don't have some goal to be at, some routine to establish, um, they're going to spin and fall back on old coping habits, right? They're not distracted, they're not engaged. Um, and it doesn't give them a whole lot of reason to do that if they don't have some meaning to achieve. Um, I think the concern is that a lot of housing first, it's, you know, housing first, but then it's also kind of housing last and that they house folks and that's it. They don't, they don't get the services they need afterwards. And in those situations, you know, you end up having folks either burn out of housing because they do something inappropriate and it gets to the point where the housing unit can't take them anymore. And so then they're thrown out, um, you know, or they're housed and, you know, they're just off the streets and having, you know, just as miserable a time suffering in a house instead of, you know, where at least folks are, are seeing them amongst community. Right. I mean, that was a huge issue with like, um, the, the fentanyl epidemic right now, right? I mean, we saw this, this phenomenon where when the COVID pandemic hit, we got all these folks off the streets and into motels. Well, what we saw after that is an, a skyrocket in opioid deaths and overdose rates in general. And that's because, you know, folks went from using together 
where if someone sees someone overdosing, they can administer Narcan and reverse that overdose to now people are using alone in a motel room. And so when they overdose, they die. And so, you know, it's, it's not, not to say it wasn't right to get them off the streets. They needed to be off the streets, right? I mean, it's, it, it had to be done. Um, but that's an example of, you know, it, kind of why we need to continue having that follow-up care. There were places that did it really well where they established like networks. Um, forget the name of the place. There's a place in San Francisco that had, they essentially established almost like dorms where they had like RAs effectively that were residents and, you know, they, they had some sort of pay and, you know, return for their services and, and, you know, decrease rent or something like that. But they checked on folks and, you know, if someone was going to use, then, you know, they let the RA know and the RA could check on them. And, you know, they found that that markedly decreased opioid deaths because there was at least that community established. Um, you know, what we found in the places where we got folks inside and out of COVID was that, you know, the opioid death rates went up because people just passed away alone in their motel room, which is tragic. The fentanyl story is huge right now. Yeah. I was reading before you shut up. I was reading an article, I think from last December and EPD was saying that a majority of the overdoses in Eureka were fentanyl yeah. caused. Yep. Which I mean, st- it seems st- like state and nationwide actually. Yeah. yeah. I would agree with that too. I, it's just, I mean, how do you stop the fentanyl? How, how do you combat that? Yeah. I mean, um, that's the problem that's plaguing everyone right now. Nobody has any good solutions. We're stopping it at the border, but we're only getting a fraction of what's actually coming into the country. One, it's difficult, right? I mean, the <laughs> I hate to say it this way, but I mean, heck, the silver lining to heroin was that someone at least had to be importing opium and someone had to be growing poppies in some field somewhere, right? I mean, there is there's a huge infrastructure that was needed for that. And fentanyl could just be created in a lab. Um and it's a lot smaller and easier to smuggle. And so, I mean, you have this issue where, yeah, it's a lot harder to regulate. It's a lot harder to stop and track. Um, and, and yeah, I, you know, certainly don't pretend to have a solution to that. What, what I can say as far as harm reduction is everybody, everybody, you, me, everyone uh, should have Narcan um, and get trained for that. Uh, public health will give it out for free. They will train you for free. The training's like 30 minutes. Um, California's actually passed laws to where you can't be held liable for administering Narcan to someone you see who's down and possibly overdosing. There's no negative side effect to the medication. Um, And it literally goes into the brain. The medication goes into the brain through the nose and kicks the opioid uh, off of the opioid receptor on the brain and buys them like 15, 20 minutes before it rebinds. And so in that time, EMTs can get there. They'll probably add more Narcan. Um, and they can get to a hospital and they can save this person's life. But otherwise, you know, if, if without that Narcan, they stop breathing and they pass. That's um, kind of a scary thought. Yeah. Because it means that things have gotten so bad. Now they're just pushing everyone to carry nar- Narcan. Yeah. And, oh, you, even if you use it, we're not going to sue you. You just do it. Right. We need people to do that. Yeah. I mean, it's it's on the level of basic first aid, right? I mean, it's, you know. But I think how, you could how still do get you sued someone? How do, for yeah. CPR, right? If you give somebody CPR and you... There, there, mess them up. I think you can. You're still. There are some liable. protections. If, if I mean, unless there's you know some proof that it's malicious, there are protections. If you see someone who's down and who's not breathing, and you go and start rendering CPR, and you know you do it correctly, and probably end up breaking their ribs as a result, um, you know they they there are some protections that you you can't get sued. I forget. I think it's like the 
Good Samaritan laws, something along those lines, um, where, you know, if, if you, if you respond in an emergency capacity out of good faith, um, then, you know, you're going to be okay. Your ability to be held liable is very difficult at that point. Um, and so, you know, and, and Narcan's the same way. Um, you know, I mean, they, the, the public health, uh, departments essentially see it as, you know, equivalent to providing CPR or providing rescue breathing to somebody. I mean, if, if you see an emergency and you choose to go in and engage and save that person's life, they're, they're going to give you a, a helping hand and not being held liable. I didn't know that Narcan wasn't a permanent fix. I didn't know that it'll rebind after a certain amount of time. Yeah. If, in, and, you know, what we're seeing with fentanyl is people are needing multiple doses of Narcan, right? And so we're needing more and more uh, doses to actually cause that effect where it kicks the the fentanyl off of the opioid receptor. Does that mean the that brain. the fentanyl is getting stronger? It just means fentanyl has a higher, uh, without going into a full neuroscience lesson, uh, there's something called affinity and fentanyl just has a higher affinity to those receptors. Um, and so with, with that, it effectively binds harder. Um, not so much that the fentanyl is stronger. I mean, fentanyl is way stronger than heroin ever was. Um, and, and I mean, there's a reason it's, it, you know, was previously only given in hospitals really is, and that's because it, it is so incredibly strong. Um, and so it just, it, the, the Narcan has to work a little harder to do that. Um, but yeah, Narcan is definitely a, I mean, there's a, a time limit as to when the body then metabolizes that, that medication and just like the opioids are metabolized as well. Um, and, you know, sometimes it has to be readministered. Yeah. And you can readminister it to draw out that length before. Yeah. I mean, it, paramedics you know, in, in, in talking with some of my paramedic friends who uh, work in more rural areas, I mean, sometimes they would have to do, you know, if, if the hospital's an hour and a half away, they may have to readminister Narcan, you know, every 20 to 30 minutes until they can get someone to that hospital, depending on how much opioids they used and how fast it's metabolizing. Um, because it may start to get off. And so then, you know, they see the person start to nod back out, you reapply. Um, yeah. That's so crazy. Can you Narcan? I mean, that's so crazy. If you repeatedly use Narcan, is the person when the effects of the Narcan wear off, are they getting high again or would they just knock out because it's an overdose? What does that translate if, to? Effectively they're getting high again. So, I mean, when you, when you look at how, um, you know, say fentanyl works, right? Fentanyl, people use fentanyl. Fentanyl, the, the molecule binds to the opioid receptor in the brain. And then at that point, uh, the individual is, you know, intoxicated. They're high, right? Um, when you start to bind too much fentanyl to the brain, it starts to bind to the receptors that control breathing. You start to not breathe, right? That's the problem with opioids. That's how people pass. Um, so then when you introduce Narcan into that, it kicks the fentanyl molecule off of the receptor and replaces it and blocks that receptor from being utilized, right? So now that fentanyl is still in the bloodstream. It's just not binded to the receptor. So it's not depressing breathing anymore. Um, effectively, then when that Narcan is metabolized, if there's still fentanyl in the system, it will then rebind to those opioid receptors and, you know, people will become intoxicated again or possibly overdosing again. Yeah. Are most people that are ODing off of fentanyl, are they using strictly fentanyl or is it laced in whatever other drug they're using because i've always heard that with cocaine that you shouldn't use cocaine because it's probably laced with fentanyl right now um i mean everything's laced with fentanyl right now um there are in cases of uh, cannabis being laced with fentanyl um and so i mean you know if you're gonna buy weed 
go go to a dispensary. <laughs> They're lacing um, cannabis with fentanyl. Yeah. Just to increase the weight or the I don't the know potency, quote unquote. I have no idea. I mean, that's 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 a scary thought. It is a scary thought, and you know, that's for especially a lot of our houseless folks. That's a, a scary piece of being out on the streets and using substances is because they, I mean, you don't know what it's in. Um, I mean, there are cases of kids accidentally getting into something that has fentanyl in it and them overdosing. Um, I mean, some school districts are starting to train teachers on Narcan. Um, because on the off chance, you know, someone uses something at school and they don't know what it is and it happens to have, you know, fentanyl in it and that kid overdoses, they want to be able to save a life. Um, yeah, it's, it's scary stuff. And a lot of it is the laced aspect. that's coming. It, it's a component. I don't know exactly like how much of this is a situation where it's laced versus, you know, people just using fentanyl to use fentanyl. Um, but I mean, it's, it's definitely a, a scary component. I mean, it, you know, whether it's in methamphetamines or whether it's in, you know, cocaine or whether it's in cannabis, I mean, it's, it's out there. I, I don't know what you do about that. And I don't understand the incentive to lace everything with fentanyl. I mean, if you're looking at it from a business standpoint, which is kind of not <laughs> necessarily great to do it, w why would you want to kill off your clientele? Why does that, why would that make sense to put this drug? Cause it only takes a incredibly small amount yeah. To overdose on fentanyl, right? I uh, yeah, I don't, I don't understand it. I mean, for folks who are seeking a, you know, if, if their perspective is, you know, I want a quote unquote better high, I don't know. I mean, it, it, yeah, from you're right. From like a purely business model, it doesn't make sense to kill off your clientele. Yeah, Yet, why I mean, would you want to? You know, there have been businesses that have been trying to kill off their clientele for years. I mean, look at the tobacco industry, and that's been working. So yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe there is an argument <laughs> to it. I guess. Yeah, that's a good comparison. It just, I think it speaks a lot to where we are in society, that even with all these dangers, people are still going to drugs, looking for either the escape or for the help or to just take a breather from whatever circumstance there is. They still want the drugs. Mm -hmm. It is. Uh, I mean, It's it, like a cry for help. It is. It is. And, you know, it's, it's, uh. Cry for help. I should I should phrase it. Cry for help if you're struggling and it's a detriment to your life. Because some people can do drugs and yeah, they're doctors or they're lawyers or they're journalists. Well, and you know, I mean, that's that's a huge thing with mental health in general, right? Is it, for for the most part, in uh, 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 with the exception of paraphilias, which are a lot of sexually related disorders, um, most of the diagnostics in the the DSM, which is kind of the mental health you know dictionary for diagnoses. Uh, have a, a little stipulation that it has to be causing impairment. There has to be a dysfunction to it, right? I mean, if I feel sad one day, that doesn't mean I have clinical depression. It just means I felt sad one day. If that sadness lingers and then it turns to the point where I'm missing work because I'm not getting out of bed in the morning, there's impairment, right? Now it becomes a disorder. Um, the paraphilias are a little different because then they also include if it's causing other people, uh, you know, impinging on their rights, then, then it also is a disorder. Um, but, you know, with, with substances, yeah, I mean, there are, there are folks who can drink. There are folks that can use cannabis. And, yeah, it doesn't affect them. Um, you know, it, I think that for a lot of folks when you start seeking, you know, heavier and heavier things, maybe it's not affecting your work life or maybe it's not affecting your social life. But there's there's a, a reason you're seeking that to some degree, right? There's some discomfort somewhere that you're seeking that escapism. And, and I would theorize that, you know, while maybe that's not 
it's not a visible thing that we can like you know point at and say oh that's the problem um there's still a component of it there and you think that holds true in most cases of drug use even if your life is going pretty well and everything seems like it's good there's something i mean how many of us you know everything seems like it's good on the outside on the outside right and i mean that's like you know bring the whole social media aspect into it and we're all trying to present like we're doing well right everyone's you know it's not it's not as popular to post oh you know my life sucks and this is what's going on and people still do that people still do that and and they get some attention for it but you know for for the most part there seems to be a real competition to you know what what kind of vacation photos can i photoshop myself into and you know how how can i present things as going well and even the way we speak right i mean you know when when i walked into the studio and you know you said hey how's it going and i said great and you know and then i asked the same you and you said great and you know either of us could have had a really garbage day, not, you know, 40 minutes ago, <laughs> but our, our base interaction isn't necessarily going to communicate that. We're not just going to, you know, go, go and, and disclose all of that. We're, we're going to kind of smooth it over and say, yeah, we're doing, doing all right, doing all right. Um, you know, and, and, and I think that's a societal component, um, especially in the U S but I don't know that that's, you know, not, not foreign in other societies as well. Um, that, that desire to, to make things look like they're going okay. And so I think, you know, for a lot of folks, they could be doing substances and, you know, behind the, the curtain, so to speak, and, you know, life looks good on the outside, but they're covering something up that's uncomfortable, whether it's a childhood trauma or, you know, uh, uh, insecurity around themselves, or maybe, you know, they don't think they're doing well. And maybe, so they're, you know, compensating with that, but their perception of how well they're doing is skewed in some fashion. I mean, it's, there's, there's all sorts of reasons. There is that desire to keep the public face clean, in a sense, that you want to outwardly present that everything is going well all the time. And then whatever is troubling you, whatever problems you're going through, you need to internalize that and work through that on your own. Right. I've had conversations on here and we've talked about that. That's almost my entire ethos is that (laughs) whatever you're going through, you need to figure it out on your own because it's your problem. You shouldn't be plaguing other people with your woes or whatever's going on because at the end of the day the only person that's going to fix it is you so kind of white knuckle yeah. your way through life and just deal with it which is you could argue is not a healthy approach to solving oh, absolutely. problems and i mean i think there's balance right i mean there's the the flip end of that which is that you know people don't even take personal accountability for doing what they need to do and so i think i mean it's all about balance right this this like toxic masculinity you know component or pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you know Again, you just gotta like my favorite figure it ethos. out right and and you know, that's, that's not, that's not functional in a lot of situations because there are times when we need to bank on others, right? I mean, whether that's financially, whether that's, you know, no, no nine-year-old is pulling themselves up by their bootstraps, right? I mean, not successfully or well, or in a comfortable state that's not traumatic anyway. Um, and so, you know, that, that, that doesn't work, um, even emotionally. I mean, sometimes we need people to talk to, and when we keep that stuff bottled up, it gets out in some fashion. I mean, whether that's, you know, anger outbursts or whether that's drinking or whether that's, you know, some other substance use or poor habit. I mean, a lot of this stuff gets out at some point. And, you know, we, I think the, the more that we accept that, you know, we are social beings (laughs) and we need to, you know, engage in, in community to some degree. Uh, I, I think the, the better we end up doing, um, and, and the better our mental health is overall. Well, and the idea that anybody gets through life on their own is yeah. crazy. You need a support network. Right. You need people in your life. You need to engage socially. I mean, I think they've done studies where 
being isolated is just as bad for your health as like drinking alcohol or doing oh, these other things. Yeah. You need to be social. Yeah. I mean, it can be linked to cognitive decline. It can be linked to all sorts of stuff. And, and, you know, you see that too, when you look at, um, pathologies of mental health, right? Different types of mental health across, uh, countries, you know, there, there are to take like South Korea, markedly more family oriented and collectivist country, right? Uh, things are done for the family. Things are done for the culture, for the country. And there's much less individualism in those societies. And so when you look at the mental health issues that they have, it's very different and things present differently and for different reasons than we do here in the U.S., which is a very individualistic society, right? Everybody's unique. They're their own special person. Um, we do things for ourselves a lot of time for, you know, self-improvement. We don't necessarily go for family improvement all the time. Not that some people don't, right? But it it's uh, it tends to be more individualistic. And, you know, as a result, we see different types of mental health issues that present differently um, across cultures, which is, you know, I think telling to why maybe we have some issues here in America and that, you know, we we don't engage with family. We don't have such a social network or we're maybe we do have that social network, but it's not it's not a close social network. It's one that we're putting that facade up. We're saying we're fine. When we're well, not. Well, and take COVID, for example, when you were yeah. forced to be alone. Exactly. I, what was the impact of that on mental health and on drug abuse and the homeless? I mean, I would imagine there would have been some increase across the board, right? I, I don't think we know the full extent yet, but I know it's bad, <laughs> right? Um, I mean, we saw suicide rates go up. We saw opioid, as we discussed earlier, opioid overdose rates um, go up um, and deaths of that go up. Um you know, I think there's there's more mental health issues now than before. I haven't seen any uh, statistics, but anecdotally, um, the crises seem to be more frequent and more intense. Um, and I, I don't think we're in a position, especially in, I mean, the state of California, at least right now, I mean, it, it's expected that by uh, 2028 will be, there's a big study, I believe, out of San Diego that was looking at this and, and something like by 2028, we will be like 20% understaffed for need versus uh, like the ability, like the, the amount of professionals in the industry to actually provide. And so there needs to be a huge push on like getting people into the mental health field and educated and get their degrees and practice and experience because, you know, in the next five to 10 years, we're, we're going to be in a situation where we have more demand and less people to provide services. That's not comforting, right? <laughs> Do you think that that is currently the biggest hang-up is the staffing? Because you always hear that the problem is getting money thrown at it. So is it just a poor allocation of those resources? Is it we're not doing enough, kind of like you pointed out, that we're not intervening enough early enough? So we're just constantly have to buy Band-Aids because that's our only tool right now. And so it doesn't really do anything effective that you can see on paper because it's at the bottom end of the chain. Yeah. I, I think some combination of all of that, you know, the, we're definitely, there isn't enough prevention. Um, I, I remember I read a study back in grad school that showed uh, on a 10 year period, every dollar that was invested in preventative measures uh, actually ended up saving about, they estimated $7 um, over a 10 year period. Right. So while that preventative measure may have been more costly up front, you know, say you have 
some massive, you know, countywide program. It's going to cost $40 million up front, but it's going to give a lot of preventative care. Theoretically, that would save, you know, $280 million down the road um, in the next 10 years, according, you know, according to this study, right, if, if their projections are accurate. Um, so I don't, I don't think that we have enough preventative uh, care. Um, you know, we look at trauma and like the ACEs study that shows, you know, there are 10 factors that when, when you have four or more of them checked off in early childhood, your chances of having mental health issues or, and physical health issues skyrockets. Um, and so, you know, the, there needs to be treatment that is geared towards and interventions that are geared towards stopping some of those things from happening, whether that's through education, whether that's through, um, you know, like child welfare services that monitors for abuse, right? I mean, that's why they exist because we know that when, you know, kids are abused or neglected, they have poorer outcomes later in life. And so, you know, not only is that the humane thing to do, um, but it, I mean, it's effectively also a cost saving measure because when, you know, we reduce trauma in childhood, we actually reduce cost of mental health issues later, um, and physical health issues. So, you know, I think that, that that's, that's a piece of it. I also think that, you know, dem- mental health with the stigma that it has, it's just not the popular field to be in. I think part of that too, is that there's just not uh, you know, we don't understand the brain completely. It's kind of the last organ of the body that like, we don't have a great grasp of. We haven't mapped it, right? There's way too many neurons and connections to, to map. Um, you know, we've, we under, we're, we're getting better about genetics. So we kind of get that, but the brain is definitely still has some mysteries, right? As to how things change. We also don't know how to really medicate it. Well, um, when you think about it, you know, when, when we talk about other meds, there, there's stuff that can be very targeted, mental health medications, when you add a medication, you're bathing the whole brain in it, right? So mechanisms are of effect. I mean, we have a decent understanding of how it works, but it's not always, it's not dialed in. Like we can't say it's a guarantee that, you know, oh, when you add this med, then this part of the brain changes and does this, and then this happens. Um, Because you're also affecting every other part of the brain with that medication. Um, And so I think because it's, it's not totally well understood or as well understood as other fields of medicine. And because there's so much stigma, um, folks don't go into it as much. It also is a field where you need an incredible amount of patience with people. I mean, you know, if you think about it, most of us, when we see someone who's acting out or having some sort of mental health symptoms or, you know, reaction to a substance that they use walking down the street, I think a lot of folks look at that and, you know, if you're not working and you're not, you know, meant to be working with that, you look at that and you think, eh, maybe I'm going to cross the street right now, right? That's a pretty standard response. And so, you know, it, why does that happen? Why do we think that way? Well, we think that way because we don't necessarily understand that that person might be sick, right? I mean, that's not that's not where people's minds go to, you know, no, not not as many people see someone doing that and think, you know, oh, they're suffering right now or, oh, that's a crisis, um, you know, if we see someone who has their leg broken and they're laying on the ground and then, you know, their leg is crooked and not bent, right. We're going to call an ambulance. Um, a lot of times when folks are having mental health crises and, you know, in the community, unless they're causing a disturbance and, you know, it's getting to the point where people are calling 911, uh, it, it, people just avoid it. And so, you know, that stigma is real and, and it's real in, in people going into the, the field of healthcare too. Um, you know, we're graduating less psychiatrists now than we were 
you know, 40, 50 years ago, um, you know, we don't have enough therapists in the area. Um, we don't have enough therapists statewide. Uh, you know, it, care for like lower levels, uh, uh, lower level professional classes. So like uh, mental health workers, right, which is kind of like a, a mental health version of like a certified nursing assistant. Um, you know, we don't have enough folks filling those positions. Um, I mean, that was the, in my time at Semper Virons, I mean, that was probably the most difficult position to fill consistently was the mental health worker position, just because it's, it's an entry level, um, a more entry level position for that, that type of work. And it's rough work. And, you know, it, the, the pay isn't the best. I mean, it's not the worst, but it's not the best. And, you know, it's, it's a situation where, uh, when people look at that and they think, okay, I can go and I can work and make this much and I can work really hard, be at risk of, you know, getting hit, have to deal with folks who, you know, are, uh, incredibly sick and unpredictable and unpredictable. And, you know, or, you know, maybe I can be paid a little bit less or have a little less benefits and, and go work at, you know, Winco or go work at the mall. Um, I mean, it makes it so that you have a difficult position to fill and it's incredibly important. I mean, the, you know, mental health workers, staff, like a lot of CNAs are the ones who are having a lot of the primary contact with those people because they're the ones who are doing a lot of the work, right? They're having the contacts with the the patients and, you know, the nurses or the, the clinicians are checking in with them intermittently, but it's very goal directed, right? It's very, I'm coming to you, we're going to do this thing and then I'm going to step back. And so, you know, it's, it's, a uh, a job that's very much needed. Um, we don't have enough case managers. You know, case management's the same thing. I mean, these are these are the folks who are doing the legwork. Um, you know, I mean, it's it's like case managers for care. I mean, you know, when I go out and see a client, it, it, you know, it's risen to a crisis situation. I go out, I do my assessment, we create a plan, and then I walk away. And then that case manager has to then go and fulfill that plan, right? They take that plan and run with it. And they're the one who's, you know, then spending the next maybe anywhere from a half hour to a couple hours with that client going from point A to point B to point C to point D trying to get that safety plan activated. And that, that requires a lot of patience for someone who's, you know, to work with someone who's really sick, who, who's having those types of symptoms and to be able to stick with it and do that. It's exhausting. What made you want to go into this field and focus on mental health? What was the desire to do that? Well, I, I didn't initially. Cause you're a marriage and family therapist, right? That's yep. your background. Yep. Yeah. So, so my license is a marriage and family therapist. Um, I graduated here at Humboldt. Um, you, you know, initially I went to San Francisco state and I did graphics design. <laughs> kind of and a pivot. A little bit. And, uh, uh, had, had an epiphany that I didn't, you know, I looked at like the other 400 people who are doing graphics design at San Francisco state as a freshman and thinking, eh, maybe not the best, you know, outlook. <laughs> um, and, you know, went back and was kind of floundering around at Shasta college and uh, taking a bunch of different classes, thought maybe I'd do business at some point. Um, and ended up taking a behavioral psychology class, found it fascinating. And the professor said, Hey, like you might make a good therapist. And so I went with it. And at that point I didn't really, I didn't think much of it, but in retrospect, I'd kind of always been going in that direction. Um, I mean, in eighth grade, I got voted by my cohort to be a peer conflict resolution individual. And so, you know, nothing that I volunteered for, just the entire eighth grade took a vote. And I was one of the like four people that they voted for to go to this training and do peer conflict resolution. 
um, in high school, I ended up uh, mentoring seventh and eighth graders in my sophomore year, and then it ended up running that program for my junior and senior year. Um, and so really the graphics design piece was what was weird because <laughs> it's like talking with folks, helping people in, you know, middle school, doing the same in high school, design. and then graphics design for a year and a half, and then went back to, you know, going to school for, for therapy. So, um, it's, it's something that I think I've gravitated to. My, uh, mom is a ICU nurse and, uh, you know, has worked her butt off her entire life and, you know, is, it really believes that, you know, even when folks are at their sickest, they still deserve to have someone there to, you know, help and treat them. Um, and so I think I, I picked up on that mentality from her. Um, I probably would have gone to med school and become a surgeon, but she kept telling me that med school suck out my soul. Um, I think she's a little biased though. Um, cause I work with some docs who are all right. <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, so, you know, I landed in mental health, I think, as a result of, you know, getting steered away from that, which I don't think is a bad thing. I like where I'm at. Were, did you ever practice as a therapist or you went straight into the mental health side? Um, I Let's see. I did a brief stint at Remy Vista um, right out of school and then jumped over to being a clinician at Semper Virens. Um, and, you know, would do therapy there, just not like your typical, you know, in an office with a couch therapy. Um, it, it, it looks different in that model. Um, for about a year, I did have my own private practice and did therapy um, just on the side, just carrying a couple clients a week um, outside of that. But um, when the pandemic happened, I kind of closed all that down just because I was going to need to refocus my efforts on uh, providing, you know, overtime opportunities to the hospital. Um, and so it didn't really stick. I, I don't know that I'd go back to that per se. Um, I like doing the crisis work. I find that fascinating. Um, and you know, I'm at this point trained in it. I mean, I'm certified as a hostage negotiator. I've taken, um, you know, crisis negotiations coursework with law enforcement. Um, I'm on the crisis negotiations team. Um, and I've been fortunately able to retain that position coming over to the city from the county um, and still get to kind of collaborate and integrate with with all the folks that go with that. Um, and so, you know, I, yeah, I don't know that I'd go out of the crisis realm at this point. Not 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 burnt out yet. You but feel that, like it's a good fit for you. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the beauty of, of the mental health field and, and I mean, if I give this for a pitch for, you know, anyone listening that, that ends up, you know, wanting to go into mental health is it's it's one of those fields where you never have to stop learning like once you have a degree in it you can just pivot and you know if you're doing hospital work and then at some point you're like i can't do hospital work anymore you could go to a primary care clinic and you could do you know basic therapy in a clinic if you get bored of that you can go open up a private practice and do that sort of work if you want to go back and get certified in emdr because you're bored of the cognitive behavioral therapy that you got trained in in school then you can go and get certified in emdr and go do that um i mean there's there's you know, so many parts of the field that you can go do um, at any point. And so, I mean, I, I look forward to that. I like to learn. And so kind of get to do that for the rest of my life and my career, um, but not not burnt on the crisis stuff yet. Have you ever had to utilize those hostage negotiation skills? I've, I haven't had to, I've never actually been called out to a hostage situation. I've been not called out to multiple barricades um, with the, the sheriff's department, the SWAT team and, um, and Eureka police department and, you know, have definitely participated in, uh, you know, de-escalation and negotiations, um, but never, never a, a, a situation where hostages were actually taken. 
I would imagine those two skill sets pretty much coalesce with one another that they're yeah they complement each side absolutely i mean you know a lot of that um especially when folks are barricaded you know something has gone wrong obviously um and that person's distressed and you know none of us think well when we're distressed right when our fight or flight is activated and you know we're completely amped up and adrenaline is pumping um you know, we don't always make great decisions. None of us do. And so, you know, when something's escalated to that point, that person's in that state too. And so, you know, having, having whole teams that are dedicated to the de-escalation of that, um, is really helpful. And, you know, especially if, you know, things have escalated to the point where SWAT is involved and, you know, they're doing their tactical piece and they definitely prefer a peaceful outcome where, you know, negotiations works. And, and I think that. everybody but, prefers that, you know, it, about the time you have like a bear cat and a SWAT team parked on your front lawn, that's not helping your, your escalation level. Right. So having a whole team that's dedicated to making that contact and, and working, you know, with that person to bring them down to a level and come to some agreement on, you know, coming out safely is, is beneficial. So you work pretty closely with, uh, law enforcement agencies like EPD. I do. Um, I mean, it, the the CSET division really. It, we're not under the police department with EPD, but it, organizationally, but I mean, they're kind of a sister department. Um, you know, we we work really closely with them, um, and and a lot of our work goes hand in hand. You know, it cares. Uh, my department, Crisis Alternative Response of Eureka. There, the calls will go through dispatch. Um, and so, you know, if, if someone calls, you know, 911 or if they call the non-emergency line and they describe a situation that they need help with, that sounds like a mental health situation or sounds like something that maybe doesn't necessarily need a police officer with a firearm at, um, they can dispatch our team and then we can go out there. And so, you know, welfare checks, um, you know, Hey, haven't heard from, my mom for a little bit she's you know elderly this is her address can you go check on her cool we can go do that um you know family member just made a suicidal statement there's no indication or risk that there's any sort of violence cool we can go do that um you know check on them safety plan talk with them help de-escalate things um you know then there are clients who Maybe there is some aggression. Maybe there are some safety concerns. And at that point, then we can co-respond with EPD. And, you know, we can either stick with patrol and patrols out there um, or EPD has their kind of more mental health specialized department, uh, CSA, which is Community Safety Engagement Team. Um, and that's the the team that uh, uh, now Commander LaFrance um, really pushed and, and dedicated a lot of energy to, to build in. Um, and, you know, I mean, they, it works. I mean, they, they do like 80% proactive engagement and it, it, they have really amazing effects as a result. That's one of those sad stories that we've been hearing over the past few years is police officers responding to mental health situations and maybe the individual is slightly aggressive or is wielding some sort of weapon and then it ends up with them being shot. Mm-hmm. It seems like that has been a frequent occurrence over the past few years and has resulted in people calling for organizations like yours to respond in place of police officers. Yeah. But is there, is there a threat of safety? Are you ever worried about responding to a call? Even if it doesn't seem like it's in the moment, maybe a police officer is necessary. Are you worried about it escalating to that point and not having one present? Absolutely. I mean, it, to, to, I mean, to be very clear, like mental health field work is one of the more dangerous parts of the mental health field. 
Um, couple that with the fact that violence against healthcare workers is skyrocketing across the nation um, since the beginning of COVID. Uh, I mean, ER nurses are, you know, getting the, the shit kicked out of them regularly, which is tragic and awful. Um, you know, it, another reason why we want our team out there, because if we can support them with any mental health patients, we want to do that. Um, so it's, it's definitely a concern. And, you know, there's never going to be a situation where you remove law enforcement completely, right? I mean, you're, you're always going to need a police element to be accessible to a mental health call. It doesn't mean you need it at every call, but you need it accessible at every call because with mental health issues and substance use issues, there is a chance that that becomes violent, just like there's a chance that any other call becomes violent. Um, you know, the data shows that individuals with mental health issues are no more violent than the rest of the population. Um, the things that change that are substance use where people are disinhibited um, and they don't control their behavior as well. Uh, and paranoia, right? When people are in that flight or flight, fight or flight state, um, you know, when they're, when people are feeling paranoid and they're, you know, they don't know if they can trust you, they're scared. They feel like they're going to be hurt. Um, that kind of increases their ability to, act out to, you know, in their perception, defend themselves. Um, but, you know, to, to first responders, it might look like they're aggressive and violent. Um, and so, you know, I think that it, mental health needs to become more mobile and integrated with law enforcement in the sense that we need to get out there and take kind of some of our responsibility for caring for these folks, right? I mean, you know, if we're mental health professionals, it's our job to care for folks who have mental health issues. And, you know, if we just let law enforcement take that on, we're kind of not fulfilling like our end of that bargain, so to speak. And so, you know, I mean, the way I see it is uh, creating teams like this is is the natural progression to us taking responsibility for actually treating folks everywhere, not just comfortably in the clinic. Well, it makes sense. Why would you not want somebody there that's trained and able to de-escalate the situation and understands what is going on and how to kind of pivot and redirect. Right. Yep. Yeah. And I mean, it's, you know, there have definitely been times where uh, the law enforcement uniform helps, right? Maybe someone complies and they de-escalate a little bit more because they see a cop present, um, which yields a safer outcome. And so that's good. At the same time, it's important to have your law enforcement staff trained in de-escalation so that they don't engage in behaviors that are escalating, right? Um, you know, there's people are going to have a different response if they have four officers all shouting commands with guns drawn than if people have one officer giving commands with, you know, other officers on standby. Maybe they have guns drawn, maybe not, but maybe they're not visible, right? And there's different approaches that that law enforcement can take to approach a situation that doesn't escalate the individual. And that's the number one goal, right? Because if we can escalate, if we can de-escalate the individual, regardless of how we end up needing to do it, that means that that individual is safe. That means that law enforcement goes home safe. Um, and that means that, you know, no innocent bystanders are hurt in the process, right? And so, you know, the, the more that we give law enforcement the education and training and tools to also be able to de-escalate folks, um, it can really shift policing. Um, and, you know, the, the type of policing that CSET does is 
vastly different from the national perspective of what policing looks like. And, it, you know, I, I would encourage folks if they have the opportunity to, to catch a ride along with the CSET team, because they, uh, I, I guarantee they will walk away with a different perception of, you know, what, what policing is or what policing can be. Um, and, you know, when, when law enforcement has those extra tools, you know, they can cover the safety piece when needed if it escalates that far. But most of the time, they're going to be able to resolve a situation safely by de-escalating someone. And that just keeps everyone safe. Which is the best case scenario at the end of the day. Yeah. Everyone just wants to go home safe yep. and make it home. Absolutely. That's, that's all that it boils down to. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, even if someone's, you know, committing a crime, I mean, if, if you know, law enforcement has built a relationship with the community and that relationship is a positive one of, you know, hey, we're not going to tolerate, you know, breaking laws. We're, we're you know, going to expect a degree of personal accountability, but we're also going to treat you like a person and you hold value and we're going to see you as that. Yeah people have a different response even when they're being arrested, even when they're being ticketed because they're at least recognized as a human in that moment. And people have a different response when they recognize when they are seen as such. Do you think this is a trend that the nation at large will start moving towards where organizations like yours have a more active role alongside law enforcement? I hope so. Um, you know, mobile crisis teams are popping up more and more. Uh, I think there's more of a demand for that. Um, there's also a really cool organization, uh, uh, Crisis Intervention Training um, in CIT. CIT is a national model for promoting de-escalation over escalating tactics um, for law enforcement. Uh, and it's a kind of joint venture of mental health and law enforcement. Um, it's like when you go to a, you know the, the typical 40-hour CIT training, and, and Humboldt holds one, um, usually put on by mental health in collaboration with EPD and the other, the other uh, law enforcement agencies in the area. Um, you know, it's usually 70 to 80% law enforcement officers that are there and, you know, 20 to 30% mental health staff. Um, and it's really cool because everybody gets to learn to work together. You get to make contacts. You get to network, um, especially when you know, those professionals work together and interface with each other so frequently. Um, that's a good thing. Uh, and then, you know, people get to learn the other side. And it's super important for law enforcement to have more mental health training too, because I mean, it, you know, and and I've guest lectured at uh, the CR Academy a couple times um, for their mental health component. But I mean, they get 16 hours allotted to uh, the Americans with Disability Act and mental health. And so only about eight hours of that goes to mental health. And so, you know, when, when you consider a clinician like myself, I mean, that was a master's degree, right? So that's in a whole extra degree. And then you need 3000 hours to get license of post, you know, graduation experience, uh, all of that. And then, you know, we're going to expect a fresh officer who maybe has, you know, eight hours of mental health training to have the tools to handle this in the field. I mean, that's not fair to the officer at that point. And you're giving them, you know, a hammer and telling them to, you know, revamp an entire motor. Um, it's just not, it's not fair and it's not effective. And so, I mean, I think that, you know, again, we need to continue to collaborate and, and I hope the country keeps moving in that direction. One of the things that I wanted to ask about, because it's been on my mind for a while, is drug-induced psychosis. Mm -hmm. And I've heard that a lot with high-dose marijuana edibles. Mm -hmm. And I, I believe it's more so with certain ailments like bipolar that that 
could bounce off. Is yeah. that pretty apparent with with the people that you're dealing with? There's a lot, or I shouldn't say a lot, but is there a population that is in there because they use drugs and then it something just broke and now shit hit the fan and they're yeah. dealing with you? Um, it's certainly a piece, right? So you know, when people become psychotic, we use antipsychotic medications. Well, just like antipsychotic medications, we have pro-psychotic substances. And so, you know, I think a lot of folks think like LSD, yeah, that's going to make you hallucinate, right? I mean, it's, that's the, you know, when you take some acid, you're, you're going to go on a trip and you're going to have hallucinations. And that's technically a state of psychosis. Um, psychosis being, you know, a separation from reality, um, or at least a shared reality. And so, you know, for, for, um, marijuana, yeah, that can happen. Um, you know, cannabis is a pro psychotic substance. And if you happen to have a genetic makeup that makes you a little more prone to psychosis, say you have some genetic predisposition to schizophrenia, or you have a genetic predisposition to bipolar disorder, um, cannabis can absolutely trigger that. Are there any indicators that you would know about that could prevent that or it's just if you have the diagnosis of oh you have this specific one you should probably stay away from these substances i would say if you have a family history um and i don't know the exact data on this so i mean take this with a grain of salt but i would i mean my personal recommendation as a clinician would be if you have a family history someone in your family and your genet you know your direct like genetically linked family has a diagnosis of bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, um, I I would encourage you to be more gentle with your brain with regard to substances that are pro-psychotic, right? So cannabis, uh, methamphetamines, um, a lot of stimulants, uh, you know, hallucinogens, mushrooms, acids, stuff like that. Because if there's, we, we do know these things are are have a genetic influence and that there's a genetic correlate and so, you know, if, if you know someone in your family has those symptoms, you kind of at least have to have a discussion with yourself around whether or not you want to risk triggering any disposition that you have. One of the ways of thinking in that, I've heard that it's not necessarily that it's the drug that is pushing you over the edge. Maybe you would have already gone over the edge later in life. And this is just speeding that up a little bit. Do you believe that? Or do you think it is, that's the catalyst and you might've been okay. Had you not used whatever um, substance? I think it could be both. Um, I think that, you know, it, there are some folks who have a predisposition and, you know, we, we know, like, for example, Men usually have a first break for if they have schizophrenia, their first break is often 18 ish to 28. Um, and you know, we know for women it happens later, we're looking more like 24 ish to like 32. Can you shoot me through? Just um, pull oh, it, you yeah. can pull it back, just pull it a little closer. There we go. Perfect. How's that? Perfect. Um, and so you know, we we know that that like there are times when these symptoms emerge, when the these predispositions emerge and the the, the illness uh becomes evident. Um, and so, you know, for folks who maybe they're already on a clock and it's just a matter of time before that episode happens, they, yeah, that substance may cause that. Um, at the same time, there might be folks who, you know, because they, they, their brain was, you know, taken care of gently, so to speak, 
their brain never really reaches a state chemically or structurally where those symptoms occur. Right. And so, you know, what we know about psychosis is, or well, well, let me rephrase that. What we know about the brain, or is this okay? <laughs> uh, what we know about the brain is that, you know, as, as people become psychotic, they, the brain changes, um, new connections get formed. Uh, we know that the brain is forming connections throughout our entire life, right? I mean, it grows, it, you know, right before 10, it prunes itself, you know, it's kind of pruning itself up to 10. And then, you know, there's a break and then, you know, 13 to 14, there's like a huge revamp and your brain completely restructures itself. And then, you know, the brain is technically, uh, you know, growing and refining its connections into your early thirties actually. Um, and so, you know, in that process, there's a lot of room for, uh, deviations and maybe what your genetics have plan for you. Right. I mean, you kind of have like the blueprint. If you think of the genetics as the blueprint, uh, you know, depending on how you implement that construction, uh, things can look very different. Um, and so, you know, for someone who has a genetic predisposition for bipolar disorder or for schizophrenia, if they can get through their childhood and their brain develops and, you know, they're in their, you know, late twenties, early thirties, They've never tried a psychotic substance or a pro-psychotic substance. They've never had a head injury. They've never had any sort of horrific childhood trauma. Um, you know, there isn't any, uh, you know, otherwise like assaults to the brain or the genetic, you know, blueprint. M maybe they reduce their risk enough to where that episode never occurs because, you know, their brain was able to grow and adapt and, you know, go in a direction that was not adjusted, um, for psychosis, you know, you do the flip side of that and you have someone who maybe has childhood trauma. You have someone who maybe is smoking pot before 14. You have someone who, you know, is maybe dabbling in, you know, a hallucinogen of some sort and they have that genetic predisposition. They are probably going to increase their chance of having an episode at some point. Um, you know, we can't prove a negative that that person may have never had an episode if they didn't use that substance. But, you know, based on what, how, like what we know of how the brain forms connections, which is essentially, uh, the, <laughs> if, if we go back to the, the, you know, neuroscience classes from grad school, the, the, the old saying neurons that fire together, wire together. Right. And so in a sense, your brain is a muscle and that when you use certain neural pathways, those neural pathways get stronger and the ones that you don't use get weaker. And so effectively for folks who use pathways that uh, result in psychosis more, those pathways get strengthened. Therefore, it's easier for them to become psychotic. And so that's kind of the, the hypothesis as to why you know, some of those substances may increase the likelihood of having that break and then it becoming more of a full, you know, long-term disease is that because you, you opened the door, so to speak, to those pathways being used, then the, the predisposition, it's easier for you to go in that direction. It's easier for your brain to adapt to psychotic state. Um, but a lot of that is, I mean, Again, because we don't, we can't we map the really brain. Know. We can't follow. I mean, you know, we're, gosh, just in the last like 10 to 20 years, we've actually been able to start, you know, getting some incredibly high-tech scans that can follow, uh, you know, 
neural pathway of, you know, signaling. And even then it's only, you know, large pathways, right? I mean, we're not finding, you know, singular pathways of neurons going from point A to point Z um, or really recycling the alphabet a couple billion times. Um, and so, you know, that that's the hypothesis, but, you know, we know that, uh, and, and, you know, anecdotally, I've seen this for folks who have routine episodes, um, it's easier for them to decompensate and it's harder for them to get better. And it's almost like, uh, if you think of the metaphor of like, you start at the top of a staircase, um, the more episodes you have of psychosis or the more episodes you have of mania, you know, maybe the first couple of times you go down three steps, you go back up three steps, but eventually you get to a point where you're down three and up two. And it gets harder and harder to get back to that baseline because one psychosis and mania are neurotoxic. That's the brain does not like those states. Um, but two, you, you are strengthening the pathways to enter those states in the first place. With mania specifically, take bipolar, for example, if that goes untreated, do those states stay constant in their highs and lows or will those progressively get worse? Um, I mean, depends on the person, you know, uh, schizophrenia and mania are, uh, with bipolar disorder more than schizophrenia, episodic to some degree, um, you know, unmitigated mania will eventually shift to some sort of depression, right? I mean, that's, that's bipolar. There's two poles. Um, you know, you'll shift back down to a more neutral state or to a depressed state um, after some period of time. Um, psychosis, l less fluctuation, but, you know, people still wax and wane in their severity, um, if not mitigated. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it's difficult because again, with the neurotoxicity of those states of being psychotic, I mean, it's toxic to your brain being manic for a long period of time is toxic to your brain. Um, and toxic in the sense that like the, the cells don't tolerate that well. Right. I mean, we're, we're, we're looking at, at using the equipment really, really roughly. Um, you know, over time, as someone grows, you know, older and older, if if they have a slew of episodes, yeah, maybe the presentation changes. Um, but, you know, we, we know that the brain gets tired faster. And, you know, that can be seen with, um, you know, cases of uh, situations where, you know, folks with long term mental health issues who've had many episodes, uh, they can they're at risk for developing dementia earlier. Um you know, unfortunately, a lot of the medications are also rougher on the brain than we would like. Um, and, you know, that can increase risk for, for cognitive issues later in life. Um, and so it's, it's, it's a difficult trade-off, right? Because the you double-edged sword. Yeah. Uh, you know, with, whether it's the, the medications or, you know, the, the pro-psychotic substance, it's going to have a effect on the brain and that may have side effects on the brain as well. Um, and so, you know, really it's about well, like working with folks for balance and, you know, trying to, to help increase coping skills in other ways that don't use substances, right? Therapy, deep breathing, meditation, uh, grounding techniques, um, building routine. I mean, it's, it's amazing what can happen to the human body and for mental health just by having routine, going to bed around the same time every night, waking up the same time every morning, making sure you're eating, you know, regular meals at the, around the same time every day, uh, 
you know, having something to do every day, having purpose, you know, finding something to go and do. I mean, just that alone can be a stabilizing factor for mental health, even for folks who have psychotic disorders. Um, right. I mean, hence why a lot of, of inpatient facilities are so regimented and they have group programs with a schedule and they're going through that schedule and they develop that routine because folks who are there for a long term, um, or longer period of time, that routine can be stabilizing. Um, and so, you know, there's other ways to stabilize some of these things. It doesn't just have to be medications. Um, but it, it's about balance. Well, exercise, yes. right? How important yep. is exercise? I believe it's as effective as SSRIs, right? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it depends on the study, uh, that you look at. I know there was, uh, I think I saw that, that headline recently that, you know, there was a study, yeah, that there was a study that was finding that, you know, it was, uh, just as effective, if not more effective. And, you know, I mean, uh, back in, this was back into grad school. So this was, uh, some years ago, it, you know, there, there was, there was research that showed that for like mild to moderate depression in particular, um, exercise could be more beneficial than an antidepressant. Um, and that doesn't mean one or the other. I mean, that means you could theoretically do both, right? I mean, you could be taking an antidepressant and establish an exercise routine and that would be fantastic. Right. Um, you know, for a lot of folks, uh, well, backing up to exercise real quick, exercise, we know changes the brain. We also know exercise releases and stimulates the production of, uh, I may get the neuro, the neurotransmitter wrong. So maybe I won't say it. We know that it, it, it can regulate the brain in a similar fashion that some of the medications do. And so, um, you know, we know that, that by establishing that exercise routine, we can get some of the same benefits. We can get some of the same neurological changes as medications by doing that exercise. Um, and so, you know, for, for that with like coupling that with therapy, um, you know, we know therapy does some of the same stuff. Uh, we know that, you know, then the meds work also. And so, you know, finding some balance between these three options. I mean, whether you're doing, you know, exercise or whether you're doing therapy or whether you're doing medications or all of the above or some combination, um, you know, those are all ways to, to help stabilize and provide balance. Um, diet's another big piece. How important um, is diet? Huge. And I mean, you know, you look at some of the studies that are rather terrifying, actually, when you start to think about it, that, you know, the, the bacteria in your gut probably have more effect on your behavior than anything we ever thought before. Um, you know, it, depending on what your diet is, I mean, that's going to change your entire mood. Uh, and so, I mean, that's a huge piece, right. And making sure that, you know, we're eating well, um, you know, when we don't eat that triggers our stress hormones. So, you know, for our folks who are houseless or who are food insecure, their, their brain is at a heightened stress level than say you or I, because we ate breakfast this morning or we had lunch, right. Um, for folks who can't sleep, um, when people don't get a night of sleep, the, uh, reaction in the brain is similar to when people don't eat that stress is triggered. And, you know, when, when people don't sleep, they, they have an increased baseline of stress hormone. They, they aren't thinking as well, right? I mean, sleep is when our brain kind of resets and repairs. It's also when it repairs our body. Um, and so, you know, for, for folks who, because of their life circumstances, aren't eating well or sleeping well that's a predisposition for mental health issues, whether it's, you know, your basic depression or whether, you know, you have a genetic predisposition for schizophrenia or bipolar disorder on top of that. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a risk. With long-term mania, does that have any effect on dopamine? 
I don't know offhand. Because um, I would imagine if you're in that heightened state and you're using those pathways, I would imagine maybe there's some degradation. Maybe Because that's the big thing with cell phones, right? Is you're priming your brain for this dopamine release and then long term it has some negative effect. Um, it It all depends on what part of the brain things are being released in, right? Um, for example, there are some uh, antipsychotics that are dopamine antagonists and agonists. And what that means is that they're, they, in some areas, they block dopamine. In some areas, they stimulate dopamine production. And so how does that work? We don't have, I mean, because we can't dive in there and, you know, find out like, oh, it's working this way on these, you know, receptors and this way on these receptors. I mean, we can't. You know, I mean, until someone is post-mortem and we're doing a, a you know, biopsy on, on their brain um, during an autopsy, I mean, we, we can't, we can't figure that stuff out. I mean, it's the same with like uh, some of the forms of dementia. You know, it wasn't until we studied enough brains of, you know, folks who had passed away who had had symptoms representative of dementia, did we find out that there are actually like little plaques that get, you know, developed in between neurons and block signaling. And that's why parts of the brain go offline. Um, and, you know, so it's, it's difficult to study, and so we don't we don't know per se. Because there's it, just a lot we don't know. Maybe there's part of the brain that has an increase in dopamine. Maybe there's another part of the brain that has a decrease in dopamine, and that combination is what causes mania. We just don't know. Going back to psychosis, is are there examples of that being temporary when somebody does break that barrier, either from trauma or from drug use? Could they come back if it's a limited exposure, or once they cross that line, is it? pretty permanent um there are definitely folks who have a single psychotic episode and it never happens again and you know a lot of that depends on again how you treat your brain how you react right if you come out of that psychosis when you're stabilized and you know if you at that point think you know <laughs> crap that sucked not doing that again and you know maybe they change their diet, maybe they establish some routine, they go to therapy, they talk about this stuff, they process you know, whatever trauma it was, they don't use that substance that kicked it off again. Um, maybe that person never has that experience again. If that person comes out of it and, you know, doesn't heed the the kind of red flag that it put dive up right back and in. dive back, you know, right back in, again, then, you know, you're, you're, the neurons that are firing together are wiring together and you're increasing your propensity there. I think people should be able to use drugs if that's what they want to do. I think to each their own. Mm -hmm. You're an adult. You can do what you want. It gets dicey when it comes to kids and kids yeah. are using these substances and they're drinking alcohol or doing, you know, high THC products, mm -hmm. psychedelics. Yeah. That's when it's, it's scary because you're just, it is. you're playing a game with your mind and hoping that you come out on the other side unscathed. Well, that's why I think, you know, education is one of the best things that we can do. I mean, I think, you know, beyond just saying, you know, hey, don't do this. Um, which never works. Which never works. I think that, you know, we have to we have to at least educate people why we're saying don't do that, right? I mean, you know, we know that marijuana use before age 14 statistically increases your chances of having a psychotic episode. Okay, cool. But if we just say don't, you know, don't, don't smoke pot, don't do that. Okay, why? Now you're now you're just the adult telling me not to do something. Now I want to do it more. So now I'm going to go seek it. <laughs> right? And so you know, it I think the especially for adolescents, we we need to 
talk with them and teach them and not really pull any punches on. I mean, we need to, you know, make it age appropriate, right? I mean, we're not going to go into a full neuroscience lesson for, you know, 11 year olds, right? But we can talk to an 11 year old and say, you know, when, when you use this substance, it changes the way your brain is forming and that could be bad. That may have these effects where maybe you hear or perceive things that aren't real. And, you know, we, we can, we can create education campaigns that, that, are, you know, at those levels that explain why. And, and I mean, you know, honor them and see them as, you know, valuable people who are intelligent enough to be able to take in information and then make their own decision with it. Um, you know, not because we're, we, we want it to just be a free for all, but because we're going to respect kids enough to, to treat them that way and, you know, arm them with the information that they need so that they can make, you know, a decision that that's more informed. Again, I don't think, if people have the information available, they're not going to choose the option that is detrimental knowingly. Right. And so I think, again, the more that we can, you know, teach about neural development, the more that we can teach about development in general, um, which is kind of mind boggling. Right. I mean, and this is a whole tangent that I go on sometimes the idea that in like high school, we don't talk about, how the brain develops and how our body develops and how cells, I mean, you know, we cover biology, right? But the fact that we don't cover like the mental health part of that, that there are whole stages, right? I mean, like our brain is doing different things at different times and we don't like touch on how social development works, how our brain perceives threats, how, you know, the reason that adolescents are more impulsive and reactionary is actually because their brain's signaling capacity is actually slower and so when they have an impulse, the whole stop button, the part of the brain that says, eh, maybe don't do that, that's a bad idea, actually doesn't work as fast as the other parts of the brain that have developed. And so they're more inclined to just jump and do what they're thinking as opposed to when you're 25 years old and that stop button has fully developed and it's firing just as fast as the rest of your brain. And then we have a bad idea and we think, yeah, maybe I won't do that, right? And so, you know, the fact that we don't, educate around that. We don't talk about that in school is, is sometimes a little mind boggling. And, you know, with my own daughter, we've had these conversations and she's 14 now and, you know, is aware of, uh, the effects of substances and, and, you know, we've talked with her about human development and, you know, the development of the brain and all that. And, you know, I mean, it's completely anecdotal and biased, but it, I mean, she's, she's doing okay with that. She seems to have a pretty good grasp of it. Um, and, you know, I think the more that we can do that with, you know, all children, probably the better. Um, and then, you know, with the idea of, of everyone having a choice, yeah, I think, you know, even adults need that education, right? I mean, yeah, if you're 30 something and you want to go and, you know, use acid, cool. Should you probably know like what it might do if, you know, you have certain genetic predispositions, probably <laughs> like, well, let's how do, do you that. make the informed decision if you don't yeah. have the information? Exactly. You're just. You're just flying by the seat of your pants. Yeah. Which is, I always come back to, I recently learned that alcohol can lead to cancer. Mm -hmm. I had no, I, I had absolutely no idea. And it makes so yeah. much sense when you think about it. Yeah. I mean, alcohol's toxin. Mm -hmm. It does its job pretty well. Yeah. But it can lead to this. And yeah. how many people don't know that? Right. Well, it leads to liver failure, right? I mean, you know. It, but you can't make the decision, okay, should I drink or should I not drink? And right. it, it's situational and- you can make decisions based off of that, but you should have the information that there is this chance. Because right. otherwise, you'd 
you just don't know. Yeah. And, and I mean, again, I think why that's why health education is so important and why it should be integrated into curriculum earlier and earlier. And, you know, it, yeah, if, if you don't, if you just have someone telling you drinking's bad, don't do it. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. Right. And so, you know, if you, if you actually educate and you talk with folks and, you know, explain that if you drink alcohol every day heavily for your entire life, your life is A, going to be shorter, but B, you know, you, you may go out with, you know, the varices in your throat bursting and, you know, gargling on blood and it's a really horrific scene. That affects people. <laughs> if you've already been drinking for 40 years, then you have the addiction component to struggle with. And so getting that information after you've already put in 40 years of drinking, that's a difficult situation because then it's like your brain is already wired to want alcohol. And so at that point, is that education as effective? No. But if we did that early on and, you know, we were telling kids that like, obviously not as graphically, um, that, you know, Hey, like this can actually, you know, shut down your, your, your liver. Uh, and you know, then you can't process any of the toxins or any of the food that you intake as a result. Um, I think that, I mean, that's helpful. It helps people make a decision. It helps young people make a decision, you know, whether they're kids or whether they're young adults. And, you know, that, that education piece is important. Honest education at every level is yeah. important. Because even if you are that guy that's in his 50s and you've been drinking for 35, 40 years, maybe you can turn it around. Maybe you could cut back, dial it to a few drinks right. a week yeah. if you just had access to the information. And especially, like you said, for kids. Totally. Knowing going forward in life, especially with mental health. I mean, yeah. if you want to drink and do all that, great. Nobody's arguing against that. But I, I keep coming back to the psychedelics. Like, you're playing this game. Oh, yeah. It's and you're hoping, nice. you're hoping that you come out okay. Yeah. I mean, if I self-disclose a little bit, like, I'm terrified of the idea of using hallucinogens, <laughs> right? I mean, you know, have certainly been with folks who have used hallucinogens, and they're like, yeah, great trip, expanded my mind, cool stuff. I have no history of bipolar disorder or schizophrenia in my family. I don't know anyone in my family who's ever been psychotic or manic. Um, so, you know, probably statistically speaking, pretty low. Um, but knowing what I know, like my risk aversion level is not comfortable with rolling the dice, <laughs> right? And it's effectively what you're doing, right? I mean, anytime you use a substance, you're rolling a dice as to how your brain is going to react to that, um, at least the first time, right? And then after that, you know, your brain's going to react pretty consistently because that's what it's wired to do. But, you know, uh, until you've done it, you really don't know. And so, you know, I mean, think folks have to have an honest conversation with themselves around, do I want to risk this? But in order to have that honest conversation, you need to know the facts and you need to know what can happen and whether, you know, what are the chances that it will. And I don't want to shit on psychedelics. I'm a huge proponent for those. It's just in regards to kids, especially oh, yeah. as your brain's developing and going back to the idea of just being informed about it so right. that you can make whatever choice you feel fits your lifestyle. Is that what you're hoping to do with these town halls? Because that's actually how I found you was the town hall, mm -hmm. Mental Health mm -hmm. 101. I think it's Saturday? Yeah, yep. This yep. Saturday. This, this Saturday from 2 to 4.30. Um, doors will open at 1.30. Um, we're going to have a panel of four experts in the field and uh, kind of do like very brief presentations then just open things up for Q&A for a long time. So just like part of that education piece. Um, yeah, that's, that's a big piece of it. Was that, did you feel like that was missing in the County currently, or was there a call for this kind of information seminar? I think a couple different pieces, you know, when I joined the city of Eureka, um, and I'll back up real quick, that event will be at city council chambers. Um, so at city hall, 531 K street. Um, but you know, when, when I joined the city, uh, 
I went to a council meeting or two and I, I watched a couple of the streams and I noticed this, this phenomenon where, you know, there are a lot of folks that had a lot of passionate frustration, right? Passionate frustration being that they've recognized something's wrong. They recognize something's not working, namely the, you know, mental health and substance use system. And they don't necessarily have an idea of how to fix it. And so they would come to, you know, council meetings and they'd vent and they'd vent at council during the public comment section, which is great. People should absolutely do that. Freedom of speech, right? Go, go and advocate to your local government, but council can't respond. <laughs> and so you have this situation where people are venting and there's no way to have a dialogue. There's no way to correct misunderstandings with information. There's no way to, you know, shift stigmatizing narratives. There's no way to have a discussion around these things and come up with creative solutions with the community because the council members can't talk back, which, you know, if I put myself in that position, which is kind of what I thought at the time, like that'd be infuriating. I mean, you know, here you are getting these comments. And I mean, the part of me is like, no, like, let's help. Let's talk about this. Let's figure out how to make it work. Um, and the fact that they can't just immediately do that right then and there just, I mean, that would be agonizing for me. And so, you know, I had the, the idea, well, what if we created a separate forum for it? And in talking with the city, I mean, city administration was super supportive of it. Mayor Bergel is super, super supportive of it and has been helping champion that. And, um, you know, the, the desire and, and opportunity to be able to use that platform to create a forum for discussion around such important issues just seemed too good to pass up. And so we kind of jumped on it. Okay, well, Jacob, I, I really appreciate you coming on and talking with me. I, I really enjoy this. Yeah, thank you for, for inviting me. I super appreciate it. And uh, thank you for hosting. And um, can I give a little quick plug again with yeah, those? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, again, the the Community Health Town Hall is going to be a quarterly series. Uh, so we're hoping to have a different topic every quarter of the year. So far, we have probably 12 or 13 topics listed. So we're looking at a couple of years worth of content. Um, the... Uh, the meeting this Saturday, March 4th, will be from 2 to 4.30. Again, doors will open at 1.30. Uh, there will be refreshments, um, some food and drinks. And, uh, you know, we'll have a panel. Uh, Leah Nagy from uh, National Alliance for Mental Illness, our local chapter, will be there. Uh, Dr. Mark Lammers, who's a psychologist with Humboldt County Behavioral Health, will be there. Uh, Luke Brownfield, uh, the public defender, will be there uh, on the panel. And uh, Commander uh, Lenny LaFrance uh, will also be there um, on the panel. And so... Um, then uh, Mayor Bergell and I will be moderating. And so, you know, we'll be able to, to again, do those brief presentations and open up for a nice Q&A dialogue and go from there. Um, if you can't visit, there will be streaming options um, on the city's website, though participation won't be able to happen. Um, and then uh, if you want to send a question ahead of time, you're welcome to at townhall at eurekaca.gov. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, Jacob. I really appreciate this. Yeah, thank There's you. A, we'll definitely have to do it again. It, hey, anytime. Happy, happy to come and join. All right. Thanks, guys.